Hi. See you. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. I'm here today with Amanda Caleb, who is going to talk to us about heterotopias. Amanda, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Amanda Caleb. I'm professor of English and Medical and Health Humanities at Misericordia University. So tell us what the heck is a heterotopia? Oh my goodness, where to begin with heterotopias? Heterotopias come from Michel Foucault's work. He's a French theorist. He mentions heterotopies in a couple works, but the one that people tend to go to is a 1984 article that's translated as of other spaces. Heterotopias are other spaces. That's like the simple definition. More complex than that, of course, because it's Foucault, is they're both real and unreal. Foucault uses the example of a mirror. So he says it's a tangible object. It exists in our world but it reflects a virtual object. So that's the unreal. So you have the real and the unreal. And so you can think of it as a space that is parallel to a utopia that holds undesirable bodies. So if we want a utopian society, we got to get rid of the undesirable bodies and we put them in this heterotopia that's this paralleled space. And it's all constructed, of course, which is important for Foucault. He has six principles to define heterotopias, and that might help a little bit if I explain those. So his first principle is that they exist in all cultures in some way. So he says these are kind of not culturally specific. They're everywhere. And he talks about two types of heterotopias. The first one is a heterotopia of crisis. And by crisis, he means a turning point in someone's life. It's like puberty is the great example he uses. So he talks about how this was a space where you put individuals away during that crisis. So you'd have like the puberty hut or boarding school. Or even he talks about a honeymoon suite because that's like a, a moment of crisis when you consummate the marriage. That's a great example because it's very much about weddings are about communal witnessing of love, but then there's an action between the bodies that you don't want to see, and that goes in another place. So that is the act that we know is going to happen, but we don't want to see it. Or puberty, it's going to happen. We don't want to be around when it does happen. The heterotopies of crisis have started to go away, and they're replaced more with heterotopies of deviation. Okay. So heterotopies of deviation are spaces in which we house people who behave in ways that contradict social norms. So prisons, hospitals, mental institutions, and that's where even cemeteries, because we don't want to be reminded of you know, our own mortality. And the idea, again, is that it's disruptive to this idealized or utopic idea of society, that if we want to try to achieve our best selves and try to be a utopia, we can't have these deviant bodies. But they have to be put in spaces that we know about and exist sort of next to or parallel to our world. So we don't expel them entirely. We want to be able to control them. We want to know where they are. We want to put them in this space. That's only um, principle one. Okay. Okay. All right. They go a little, I two. Go a little bit faster. Yeah, I was going to say, I promise they go a little bit faster. Okay. So principle two is that a heterotopia has a specific operation anchored to a specific time. And so as society changes, that operation would reflect the new time. He thinks about the evolution of where cemeteries were located. So previous to the 18th century, they're next to churches and you have to be pretty important to be buried there. Otherwise, you're talking charnel houses for the lower classes. But the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, and he ties it with the rise of the clinic. So there's a little bit of birth of the clinic in there as well. We see cemeteries being developed on the outskirts of town. 
right? So we have cemeteries that are not necessarily next to churches. And he says this is a heterotopia because essentially people don't want to see these dead bodies, right? They're sort of these bodies that remind us of our own mortality and they're those undesirables, but it's also a reminder of the failings of medicine. So he argues that as the clinic's rising, we expect medicine to be able to do more. When people die, we're like, don't want to see them. So we move them to the outside of society. So that's two. So two is pretty straightforward. Principle three is that heterotopias house incompatible elements in a single space. Foucault's example is actually pretty good on this one. It's a garden. So if you have a garden, you have vegetation from all over, you know, regionally or even globally in the same space. It's a very defined space. But you also have sort of an ordering or hierarchy that's happening where you decide to put your roses, for instance, if you have any kind of organized garden. And so that's where you have those incompatible elements, but there's still a sense of trying to order. The fourth one is that they function within temporal discontinuity. So they break from normal time flow. And he talks about two versions of this. The first is heterotopias of indefinitely accumulating time. And that's his phrase. So if you think of a museum or a library, they bring past, present, and future all into one space, but they're also frozen in time and they're protected from the ravages of time in this very defined building. So I think that was kind of a cool one to think about when you go into a library or museum, you know, in the post-COVID days and go, I'm in a heterotopia. Wait, up until now, I was thinking that all the things we put in heterotopias were bodies. Yeah. We also put documents or are we sticking the librarians in the heterotopia because we don't want to see them? <laughs> So this is where Foucault gets a little bit inconsistent because the beginning of this article is all about bodies. And then he's like, let's talk about libraries. And it's actually the only example besides the garden he gives that isn't about bodies because the garden, of course, I mean, you could argue, um, you know, vegetation as a living being, but it's not, a. I wouldn't say body for that. And certainly I'm not sure I would say de a deviant body. <laughs> deviant roses, get out of my garden. <laughs> Maybe if it's a garden of weeds, you're like, all the weeds will go in there. Heterotopia is such a big concept in a way that he he lays out these principles and then some of his examples are perhaps not the best examples. <laughs> so when I think about temporal discontinuity, my research was on was Victorian sick rooms. And that breaks from the normal flow because a Victorian sick room would be someone's bedroom that has been repurposed as a sick room. So it kind of interrupts that flow, the domestic time flow, so to speak. But yeah, he chooses libraries and museums instead. And then the second example of this temporal discontinuity is heterotopia is linked to festivals or fairgrounds. Huh. You know, if you think of a fair in particular, it's in a field or in wherever it may be in a town. And it only is a fairground for four nights a year, let's say. So it's a regular space that's transformed for a limited time. And it's pleasurable because of this precarity. And so he says that's the other type of this temporal uh, discontinuity is you either have this kind of indefinitely accumulating time um, or you have this very finite amount of time, but it still disrupts the sort of normality of the world and the space itself because that field or whatever becomes a fairground or, you know, like the streets of Rio become Carnival. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of Mikhail Bakhtin on the Carnivalesque. Yeah. The funny thing about heterotopias is I'm constantly kind of running to other theorists at the same time. Definitely Bakhtin there. Principle five makes me think of his concept of chronotopes as well. So principle five is that heterotopias are demarcated but accessible and they're linked to the opening and closing of doors. They have to be demarcated. They have to have some way to enter and exit. And they have to be either a compulsory entrance. So think of a prison. You have to go in. Or some way of getting in, like a rite or a ritual. 
And I think even cemeteries work here because you could say the right is you have to be dead to be a permanent resident of a cemetery. You can visit, but there's that ability to go in and out. And, but there's also very definitely a ritual to putting a body in a cemetery. Everybody gathers, you put a shovel full of dirt on the casket, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And then the sixth one is that heterotopias operate in relation to all other spaces. So he thinks of heterotopias as either creating a space of illusion, and his example is a brothel. He says, perhaps that is the role that was played by those famous brothels of which we are now deprived. Which I, like, you kind of squirm a little when you're reading that, I feel like. like <laughs> so that's the space of illusion. You know, you can have this absolute indulgence. You can have your interior fantasies played out in a brothel, but it's separate from your domestic space. Or you have a space of compensation, which is the idea of organizing a world to counter our really messy world. And the example he uses is 17th century Puritan colonization in America. That there was this like, we're going to organize it very, very well because like we just left a big old mess. <laughs> so yeah, so it's either like I'm going to indulge entirely in my fantasies in this heterotopic space or it's going to be absolute organization or discipline. The heterotopies can kind of go in these two extreme directions when you think about it. But these are side of the principles he says, if this is happening, we can see this as a heterotopia. Okay. All right. <laughs> now that we've made it through all six of the principles. Sorry. Takes forever, I know. So how do I use a heterotopia? There are some people who believe that Foucault was kind of messing around when he came up with the idea of heterotopia, and he never really intended anyone to analyze it or to apply it in the way that we have, which I think is kind of hilarious to begin with. But heterotopias are used in literary theory and, and urban planning and architecture. It's pretty prolific. So whether he intended it to be used or not, we're using it. You know, if you want to be really methodical, I think you think about those six principles and say, does the space I'm looking at fulfill these requirements? And, you know, Foucault gives us so many examples that you're like, okay, cemetery, check. But, you know, if you want to think about other spaces as well, mapping post-colonial space with heterotopia, I think, is a really interesting way to think about particularly neo-Victorian texts that are reimagining the Victorian period and has the subaltern speaking back. I think even thinking about representation of slavery and slave ships, like how the ships are used themselves could be thought of as heterotopic in terms of that representation. So, yeah, we can go a little bit further with it, definitely, beyond physical space, so to speak. Yeah, and even perhaps, as you were suggesting, the entire logic of empire could be read this way. Yeah, yeah I feel like, you know, disability empire, like there's so many lenses to really apply it and to think about how that space is being used. So let me ask you our last question. Okay. How will heterotopias save the world? Oh my gosh. Oh, that is such a hard question. I'm not sure heterotopias would save the world, but I think understanding heterotopias would save the world. You know, I think what I have always loved about Foucault in general is how he makes us realize how power functions. What I think is really important about heterotopias is that understanding them makes us understand how space has power, how these spaces are constructed to be powerful, and how those spaces can be used as a power against the powerful, if you will, as well, sort of this uprising. So I think it makes us rethink about some of these spaces like cemeteries and hospitals, thinking about what does it mean to be occupying these spaces and how is one sort of confined by society's expectations of how we should perform and how one can use that to challenge society for this false utopic view. I think that's an incredibly powerful thing. 
and a way to really challenge our idea of how we just look at buildings themselves, honestly. I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty of the architects who are using it and urban planners is you're starting to go, oh, wait a minute, why do we have it designed that way? And how does that influence how we're viewing who we value in society? That suggests actually a really wonderfully material way of changing the world. I feel like usually people offer to that question very abstract answers, which is great. And I love abstract theoretical answers, but like we could use it to build buildings differently. Yeah, in some ways I see heterotopias as one of the most practically useful concepts that I've studied at least. Applied Foucault! Applied Foucault! (laughs) I feel like that should be a graduate class. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for coming and teaching us about heterotopias. I loved it. It's so much fun. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.